Thanks, Arnie. Good morning, City Lights. My name is Dan, and it is a privilege to sing to Jesus with you. Most mornings up on the stage is one of the worship leaders for our church, but today I got to sing from right alongside of you, and I got to say I loved every minute of it. Um, just to share a little about me, I am married to my wife, Jordan, and we have four amazing kids. Uh, due to the pandemic, there's a good chance that you may not have seen them around here on a Sunday for a while, but I promise you they are real. They're not from a stock, you know, Hobby Lobby picture frame. I know they're good-looking people, but they do belong to me, so. There's a lot of things I enjoy about leading worship in the church, and I've got to say my favorite is hearing us sing together. When we sing a little later this morning, we're going to sing one more song uh, before the close of our gathering, and I want you to listen to the sound of your brothers and sisters singing along with you, because it's a beautiful sound. Kaylin's going to do her part in keeping us in tune and, and in time, but I want you to listen to the sound of these voices declaring what is true in the songs that we sing. And we actually get to see a little bit of that happen in today's passage. And so let's go ahead and get this started. Doug did a great job covering nine chapters of Joshua for us last week. I am only covering one chapter this morning. I'm really thankful for that. Uh, you can open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. That's kind of our home base for this morning. In this chapter of Joshua, we get to see the nation of Israel reaching the end of their conquest for this land of Canaan. But that doesn't mean that their battle for identity as a people is over. In fact, it seems to be just beginning. We're going to identify with Israel as we watch them work through what it means to be the people of God and how that impacts the following areas. First, how do they show their love for God? Second, how do they find unity with each other? And third, where do they find their hope for the future? So we're going to talk about love unity and hope, and all in the context of this story of a dividing nation, a false altar, and a near civil war. So in case you can't tell, this is going to be a story today. Joshua 22 is written as a narrative, and so I invite you to get drawn in to this story with me as we let the Spirit of God speak through his word. In the last few chapters, just to kind of catch us up, we saw the land being distributed to the various tribes and families. And the people of Israel are getting ready to settle down in the land. But not all of the tribes are going to settle on the conquered western side of the Jordan River, in the Promised Land. Why? We can read the details in Numbers 32, but I'm going to summarize for us. See, before they crossed the river to start conquering, two of the tribes decided they actually liked the land on the east side of the river. And so the leaders of the tribes of Reuben and Gad go to Moses, and they ask if they can stay and settle on the east side of the river instead of taking a portion of the west side after it's conquered. Moses says it would be wrong for you to let the other tribes go to war while you stay comfortably here on this side. It reminds me of when I was a kid, and like a good leader, I got all my siblings when it was time to clean our room, hey, let's... Let's work together. It'll go quicker that way. That's how I talked when I was 10 years old. And, uh, and so we would get together and we would clean the rooms and we would always start with my room because I was a good leader. And then after we were done, because I was not a good leader, I would be done with my room and they could go finish on their own. And so this is where the tribes make an agreement that the men of Gad and Reuben are going to go to war with the rest of Israel. 
on the west side of the Jordan, and they're going to leave their families settled on the east side of the Jordan to return to them later. They say, we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. So, in Joshua 22, the conquest is complete. Joshua is going to keep the promise that Moses made to these people and is going to finally send them home. But before he does, before they part ways, he gives them some instruction on loving the Lord. And that comes out of obedience. That's the key word in this. So let's start in Joshua verse 5 here. Only be very careful, he says, to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord our God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and all of your soul. Joshua is like the parent watching his kids leave and take off for the first time on their own, and he's trying to remind them of what's important. I remember when I was in high school and my best friend got his license a couple of months before I did. And so I went to his house and we were going to get in his truck to go on a drive for the first time. And his mom did that thing where she held out the keys to him but kept remembering just one more thing, right? Where she said, please go the speed limit. Okay, please use your blinkers when you're turning, okay? Be back before dark, okay? And that's, that's what Joshua is doing here. He's trying to send these men off with one last reminder of what's really important. And do you see the two things that he's woven together in this verse? Observe or keep the commandments and the law. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his commandments and cling to him and serve him with all of your heart and your soul. He's telling them to love the Lord with everything they are, and he's saying that you live that out through obedience. God desires their obedience because it shows that they value him above all else. So how do we show our love for God? How do we put that on display? Our love is displayed in our faithful obedience. And this idea of showing love for God through faithfulness and obedience in him is wrapped up in this one Hebrew word, and it's the word chesed. Chesed is one of those words that gets translated into a few different English words, depending on how it's used and the context. Because its meaning is this whole idea of love that is expressed for God through faithfulness and obedience. So we're going to go on a side trip to Hosea 6.6 for a moment, where this word shows up. And God says that he desires this, steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So instead of just putting on display love with sacrifices and offerings, God wants this steadfast love, which is the word chesed. This kind of love that God desires is a faithful love that results in their obedience to him. Put another way, God desires this faithful obedience because it shows their genuine love for him. And Jesus actually says the same thing in, verse, in uh, John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Going back to my friend and I in that pickup truck, you know that as soon as we were out of the driveway, we had a good laugh at his mom's cautious approach at giving him the keys. But do you know how I know that he loved his parents? He drove the speed limit. He used his turn signals. And we were back before dark that night. 
And that wasn't an isolated instance either. It was very clear to me that my friend loved his parents because he was careful to obey them. And he had a very high regard for the things that they said. So if we want to be a people that is marked by our love for the Lord, we must be a people who choose faithful obedience to what he commands. We must cling to him, as Joshua instructed, as if this were a matter of life and death. Because church, it is. Jesus is the only hope that we have for life. And if people who really love Jesus do what he commands, then friends, we have to be serious about following Jesus in our obedience. Because our love is displayed in our faithful obedience to Jesus. Remember that word, chesed, that was translated steadfast love in Hosea. Well, when that word is used talking about people towards God, it's usually translated faithfulness. But when it's translated as people toward other people, it's translated mercy. Let me ask a question. Is it possible that this chesed, this steadfast love, that leads us to live a life of faithful obedience to God is also what leads us to show mercy towards one another? Is a true love of God what leads us toward unity with one another? I think it is. And I think we see that in the next part of the story. So Joshua sends the people off to their homes, right? And only five verses later, they have stopped on their way home. Uh, on the wrong side of the river, and they've built an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So before they even cross the river back to their side of the Jordan, they've built this giant altar. Why is that a problem? God had forbidden it. Deuteronomy chapter 12, God says, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do as I am commanding you. So there was only one place that the people of Israel were invited to bring their sacrifices and their offerings before the Lord, and that was at the tabernacle, which at this time was located in Shiloh, far to the south. So when this news of this second giant altar reaches the other ten tribes, they respond in two ways to this. First, they gather all of the people at Shiloh, where the legitimate altar and tabernacle are located, and they get ready to go to war. That's what Arnie read for us earlier. They are not going to allow this thing to happen, and we're going to see why in a moment. Second, they put together a delegation made up of the ten chiefs of the ten tribes and also the son of the priest. So they have these ambassadors that are going to try to avoid the war, but they have a standing army in the case that they can't. And a microphone stand. And you can feel this tension in the air as they approach the tribes to find out how they're going to deal with this altar. And I'm going to summarize this for us, but I would encourage you to read it this afternoon. So the ten chiefs, not including Patrick Mahomes, that's a different chief, okay, they start by speaking on behalf of all Israel, and they accuse these tribes of committing a breach of faith against God and an altar of rebellion against God. So notice who they are accusing these people of acting against, acting against the Lord. But they're not only upset 
over what they perceive to be this act of rebellion against God, they're also concerned over the implications for the people of Israel. They start to bring up at this point some of their recent history of disobedience, and we start to see why they are so concerned. It reminds me of a time when my extended family was going on a fishing trip to northern Canada, and they invited my dad and I to go along. And my dad said we weren't going to go because it was too dangerous. And I was like, Dad, Canadian fish aren't all that dangerous. I don't get it, you know? And he said, Dan, do you remember the time that you cut your finger off in a door and your mom had to carry it to the ER in a little plastic baggie? I remember this. And my dad said, do you remember that time that you crushed your toe with a cinder block and I had to carry you to the ER? I also recall this. I'm worried what happens when I give you a bunch of fish hooks and a fillet knife in the middle of the Canadian wilderness. That's, that's all I'm trying to say here. And I, valid point, Dad, right? Like, I was an accident-prone child. And these memories that the chiefs of Israel are bringing up, though, are far more serious than my visits to the ER. They bring up the sin of Peor that's detailed in Numbers 25. This is when Israel started to worship the idol Baal, or Baal, and they started going after the daughters of the Midianites, and, or the Moabites. And the result is a plague that wipes out 24,000 people. They reference the events of Joshua 7, when some of the treasure that belonged to God was taken by a man named Achan, say that five times fast, and Israel suffered a military defeat. People died, and they mention in verse 20, Achan did not perish alone for his iniquity. All of Israel had suffered as a result of this sin, and they weren't going to let it happen again. But wait, there's more to the story, and there's more to this altar than it appears. So in verse 24, these eastern tribes respond about why they built this altar. This is what they say. They built it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made a Jor the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So then your children might say to our children, making them cease to worship the Lord. The eastern tribes respond that they have not built this altar as an act of rebellion, but in hope of remembrance. They are afraid that this river that divides their land will also cause division among their people and will result in them being separated from God. So you see, the people of Israel have come to this crossroads, or a cross river, more accurately, and their concern is rooted in their identity. They're trying to figure out exactly what makes and keeps them as the people of God. Is it how well they avoid the sins of the past? Is it how well they stay connected to the land into the future? Does living on the wrong side of the river mean they're no longer the people of God? And not all of these questions are answered here. They're still left looking for a future hope that's not rooted in their performance, but I want us to pause for a moment and recognize this moment of unity that follows their explanation. They might not have the answers to all of their questions, and they might not agree about everything, but the tribes find unity in this moment they find unity in what they've established in verse 22. They say, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. 
They've established who they will worship. They have decided that the Lord, Yahweh, is the only God that they will worship. And despite all of the other things that divide them, the rivers, the tribes, the distance from the tabernacle, this moment of unity occurs when they find unity in that they worship God alone. Their unity is found in a faithful worship of God. So church, we have the potential to be divided around a lot of things, don't we? Politics, social circles, personal tastes and preferences and opinions. And we will not ever find a lasting unity in any of these things. And the truth is that when we prize these things too highly, they actually cause disunity in the places that really matter the most. And I'm not trying to be intentionally vague here. I am trying to leave space for the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us on those issues. Just hear me when I say this. If we are going to find unity as a church, we are going to find it in the same place that Israel found it in these passages. We're going to find it by declaring that the Lord is our God, and specifically by declaring the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We, as the people of God through Jesus, are going to find our greatest unity around our faithful worship of Jesus. So as we come to the close of this passage, we have this huge replica standing of Israel's altar, this towering monument that they name the Altar of Witness. And it's supposed to tell or remind these people that Yahweh, the Lord, is the God that they serve and worship. And that's what witness means, right? It means to see something and then to tell about it. And they call the altar witness in verse 34 because it's a witness between us that the Lord is God. The word witness, I think, is interesting. And I think it leads us down a path that lets us see how Israel starts to go astray and also points us toward our need for a greater hope. So we're going to find out that Israel's hope and ours is found in the faithfulness of God. We're going to make a side trip again to Exodus 19 for just a moment because it gives us some context to this word witness, but also context to who Israel was called to be. We'll actually see the themes of Joshua 22 there, and if we look closely enough, we'll see them, I think, starting in verse 4. This is God addressing his people. He says this, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself.'" The word witness is not used there, but the first part of seeing something happen is. Okay, so keep that in mind. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. There's the obedience that we talked about. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. There's the unity. They have a new identity as the treasured possession of God himself. For all the earth is mine, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do we do with that? What does that have to do with witnessing? Well, a priest, especially in the ancient world, serves as a mediator between two different parties. And in this case, the one party is God, and the other party is all the nations of the earth. So Israel was to be the priest between God 
and all of the earth. The role that Israel is being called to here was one of being a representative of the one true God, Yahweh, to the nations of the earth. So, back to our question, was it wrong for them to build an altar or a monument to remind themselves that the Lord is God? Not particularly. But had God called for an altar of imposing size to witness to who he was? Had he called for a stone monument to be built to tell the world about who he was? No. He had called the people who he treasured to witness to him. He had called the kingdom of priests, a people who were holy, which means they were set apart for this purpose, to witness to who he was. And I wonder if we've experienced something very similar in our culture today. Have we built up altars of our own that we expect to take the place of our witness? Are we loving our family and friends in a way that witnesses to the love of Jesus for us? Or have we become content with Christian as a status on Facebook and a cross on our living room wall? Are we living a life with our coworkers that speaks to the saving power of Jesus Christ, or are we content with a bumper sticker that says Jesus saves? How do we know that Israel forgot about their call to be a witness in the days that followed? In the book of Judges, just a few pages past this in your Bible, we see that after Joshua and his generation died, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And then things go downhill really fast. They return to idols, and then they ask for a king, and then their kings turn to idols, and they eventually get exiled out of the land altogether. So not only did they fail to witness to the nations around them, they failed to witness to their children. Maybe they relied on stone monuments to witness to the generation that they were supposed to speak to. Ultimately, the faithfulness of Joshua's generation was not enough. The people forgot. They went back to old idols, old habits, old sins, and we can see in Joshua 22, can't you, this picture of a people who are desperate to be faithful to God, but completely unable to do it. And I think this is where I identify with these people in this story the most, because I can relate with them. Have you ever gone back to an old sin? Have you ever gone back to an old habit you swore you would never do again? Have you ever spoken words to somebody you swore you would never speak again? The truth is that we are no better than Israel. Our obedience to God is imperfect. Our faithfulness is incomplete, and we have broken the law of God. We have fallen short of his glory, and we deserve death and separation from him, just like Israel. Put simply, we need a faithfulness that is better than our own. And so I'm thankful, church. I'm not going to leave you hanging on that note that God sent a faithful one in our place to live a life of perfect obedience and of complete faithfulness. All of the yearning of Israel for faithfulness to the covenant and our yearning of restoration of relationship is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're asking Why are we talking about Jesus so much in an Old Testament passage? Because Jesus is not only the answer that these people were looking for, he is also what all of Scripture points forward to. In John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness to me. Just like these people 
we're looking forward to a greater hope in the coming Messiah. We know that he came and he's coming again, and we find our hope, church, in Jesus and in Jesus alone. It has to rest. Our hope has to rest in something that is greater than our ability to remember the past or even to invest in the temporary future. It has to be something more steadfast than stone monuments and more long-lasting than our own good intentions. Our hope has to be found in not our faithfulness, but in the faithfulness of God. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We're going to take communion here in a moment. I'm going to invite the band to come on back up. If you haven't already grabbed a cracker and juice, uh, there is some on the table in the back. Feel free to go grab one of those now. We're going to remember Jesus, the faithful one, through communion this morning, which is something that Jesus instructed his followers, his disciples, to do in remembrance of him. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to join me in that this morning. If you have not yet decided to follow Jesus, I would ask that instead of participating in communion, you consider where your hope is this morning. If you are trusting in something else or someone else that is not Jesus, would you consider turning to him this morning? I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Can I pray for us? Jesus, we thank you for being the faithful one who came to do what we could not. You lived a perfect life and you paid the price for our unfaithfulness. And Jesus, today may we find unity in you as your people who seek to worship you with all of our hearts and all of our obedience. We find our hope in you, Jesus, and we're grateful. We pray this in your name. Amen.